Our text this morning is Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. After the sermon, let's sing hymn five, stanzas one through four. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever read a good thriller novel and you were in such suspense how it would end that you decided to read the last chapter way before you got to it? You ever done that? How could you? That's a way to ruin a good book. The whole point of a book is that it's a journey with all kinds of clues and all kinds of angles that lead you to try to discover the truth. And maybe at the end, there's a huge twist ending. It's a tremendously exciting journey. Don't ever read the last chapter first and, and ruin the suspense and ruin a good book. But what about the Bible? Should you read the Bible that way? You, you can't, because we've all read the Bible, we know how it begins and how it ends, and everything in between the fall into sin and redemption in our Lord Jesus Christ. At the same time, you have to learn to read the Bible and just forget about how it ends. Find a place in the Bible, read it and enjoy it and discover. If you read, for instance, Israel, its escape out of Egypt, going through the desert, getting into the promised land. A little bit later, when you read about the days of the judges, you don't want to know how it ends. You've got to go on the journey to, to see the struggles, to learn from it yourself. How's it going to end? How's it going to work out? What is Samson going to do? Is he going to, is he going to win? Is he still going to conquer the Philistines? You have to just forget about the ending and read it as it works out and really get the message that's being given to us by the Holy Spirit. Now, the Gospel according to Luke is like that. Luke begins by saying, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, so that you may know the certainty of the things you haven't taught. Basically, Luke is saying, look, you may have read Matthew and Mark and John, but here's a new Gospel. Uh, it's the same message, but... I have a different way of arranging it, and I have eyewitness accounts, and I'm inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course. But you need to read what I'm presenting to you to get a, a slightly different picture, to get a fuller picture of who Jesus is and, and, and what he did. And what, what Luke invites us to do is, is don't read the last chapter. We all know what the last chapter is about. But journey through Luke and see the life of Jesus, see his struggles, see how he deals with tax collectors and prostitutes and Pharisees and Sadducees. And as you walk with him and journey with him, you get to know the real Jesus, who's your Lord and your Savior. If you look at the first couple of chapters of Luke, and I think I've preached on a couple of these passages with you in the last month or two, it starts off with those amazing birth announcements of John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, Son of David, Son of the Most High God. 
Not that long ago, I had a subsequent sermon here on the purification of Mary and Jesus and Jesus' presentation in the temple. If you continue to read, you meet Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in the temple, soaking everything up. It was dawning on this 12-year-old boy, everything in that temple, all that blood and all those sacraments was pointing to him. He discovered more and more who he was and what he was to do. Just before our text, we read about John the Baptist preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Then in our text, our little text, it's like a photograph of Jesus standing in the Jordan River with John the Baptist and all these other people being baptized as well. He's just 30 years old. He really hasn't done anything yet. And the ministry of John the Baptist is almost done. The ministry of Jesus Christ is just about to begin. We know who he is, but he hasn't done anything yet. And now the question is, and you don't want to jump to the last chapter, what will Jesus do? What will he say? Is he up to the challenge and the calling that he has to be our Lord and our Savior? Our text this morning is an eye-opener into Jesus Christ, not just his identity, but knowing and recognizing full well that Jesus Christ had come to do a job, and that job was to save us. We look at our text under this theme. At his baptism, Jesus receives divine confirmation that he is the Messiah. And we'll look at the baptism, the prayer, and the confirmation. Now, you might have noticed that Luke's account of Jesus' baptism is far shorter than that of Matthew. And it's even shorter than that of Mr. Brevity himself, and that's, that's Mark. All Luke says is that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. The only thing that he says about the baptism is that Jesus was baptized too. That's it. No more detail. A lot less than Matthew. And, and that, that's a tip-off for us that we need to focus not just on the baptism, but what happens after the baptism, which is a, a key part of our sermon this morning. Nevertheless, Luke does give us a, a few details about the baptism of Jesus that you don't find in the longer accounts of Matthew and Mark. First thing he says is that when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. So, so uh, Luke connects these two things, the people being baptized and Jesus being baptized. You have to see the picture. When Jesus enters the Jordan, it's not just he and John, but it's he, John, and a whole bunch of other people that are being baptized. Not a surprise. Certainly was a, a surprise to John the Baptist himself. We see that in Matthew 3, he objects strenuously to baptizing Jesus. He says, I, I'm not going to baptize you. I should be baptized by you, Jesus, and not you baptized by me. And why did John have such a struggle with that? Because we read, we read it together, John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was baptizing people who confessed they were sinners and needed to be forgiven and needed to be born again. And Jesus was not a sinner. He had never sinned. 
He never would sin. So why did he need to be baptized? Why did he need to be baptized along with all the other people? Now, I, I, over the years, I've heard a couple of explanations. Some people have said that Jesus needed to be baptized so that he could institute baptism. He didn't need to be baptized to institute baptism. John the Baptist was already doing it and his disciples, and pretty soon a bunch of John's disciples would become Jesus' disciples. And they would just continue baptizing. Baptism was being instituted. It was an institution without Jesus himself having to be baptized. Others have pointed to the words just before our text when John said, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I am will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. People have said, see, that's being fulfilled in Jesus' baptism. But you're not listening if you think that. John didn't say Jesus will be baptized by fire and the Spirit, but Jesus himself will do the baptizing. He will baptize others with fire and the Spirit, ultimately fulfilled on Pentecost. What our Lord Jesus Christ will do with every believing person who repents from sins, he will baptize them with the Spirit, fill them with the Spirit, Spirit of Pentecost. That Spirit will lead them to incredible heights, new, a new way of living to the praise and the glory of God with a clear understanding of who Jesus is and what the whole Bible says about him. So we have not answered the question yet why Jesus was baptized. John was absolutely confounded. He was gobsmacked. He hadn't the foggiest idea what Jesus was doing there in the Jordan with all the people demanding to be baptized. Now, in Matthew 3, Jesus said to John that I need to be baptized. He says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Now, John understood that. He understood the fulfilling of all righteousness. Just to make it really short here, without all kinds of theology, righteousness means salvation. When Jesus says, we've got to do this to fulfill all righteousness, John understood, we've got to do this for the salvation of sinners. But you see, in John's mind, the salvation of sinners would be through power. He looked at Jesus and says, this is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the man who is much stronger than I am. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. He will baptize with the spirit and, and fire. He's a man of power. But when Jesus entered the Jordan and stood there with all those other people and said, baptize me, then John began to understand that the work of Jesus Christ would not be done through power, but through sacrifice. The lion of the tribe of Judah needs to become a lamb. It's Jesus would win not by horse, by spear, by sword, by shield, but he would win. He would win and gain our salvation by being made a sacrifice and dying for sinners on the cross of Golgotha. When Jesus entered the Jordan, not just he and John, 
But with all those other people who were sinners, who were being baptized at the same time, what Jesus Christ was doing is he was entering the Jordan and showing that he was being one with sinners. He was not ashamed to be there. He was not ashamed to be called their brother or their savior. He went into the Jordan not because he had sins, but because he wanted to take the sins of his people on himself. What happened there in the Jordan would later on be explained by Paul at the end of 2 Corinthians 5 when he said about Jesus Christ, He who had no sin was made to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus entered the Jordan to take our sins upon himself in order that we might receive the righteousness of God. That's the forgiveness of sins, adoption as the children of God, and heirs of life everlasting. John the Baptist began to understand this. We also read in the Gospel according to John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. That's an amazing passage, and this is right after John sees Jesus coming to him. So right after the baptism, John said, we read, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water is that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him, except that the one who sent me to baptize with water, told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, and I testify, that this is the Son of God. So John says, you know, I was sent to baptize by somebody, that's God, and God said to me, the one who I baptize, when the Spirit comes down on him, I will know that's the Son of God. And you know who he is? He says, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. You see, it all came together for John, and he passes that on to us, that Jesus was there in the Jordan with all those other people being baptized because the Lion of the tribe of Judah is also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was there to take our sins. That brings us to our second point. We read in our text... And as he was praying, heaven was opened. Now only Luke mentions this, that while Jesus was being baptized, he also prayed. And when you continue to read Luke, you read again and again that the Lord Jesus loved to pray. Hours upon hours praying with his heavenly Father. He had this tremendous need to share his experiences his hopes and dreams, his frustrations, and his fears. He needed to talk about that with his Heavenly Father. So when we read in our text that Jesus prayed, you can't gloss over that. Your ears should perk up. Your interest should be piqued. You should say, why is he praying right now? What is he doing? Do you remember that on the eve that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
praying to his heavenly father and he was sweating drops of blood. His agony was so huge, the weight of the sins of the world on him and and recognizing that the wrath of God was going to hit him like a fiery furnace was almost too much to bear. And he prayed to his father, you know, if this cup could pass me by, let it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He went on, but what a tough journey it was. He sweat drops of blood. Now, our text doesn't say that, but I can imagine, brothers and sisters, that when our Lord Jesus Christ stood there in the Jordan River with all the others being baptized, and he, he was baptized too, that he might have been sweating drops of blood. Certainly, the agony that he felt at that moment was almost too much to bear. He needed to pray. He looked at all those men and women there in the Jordan River. Those people who had been sinning for dozens of years, and he was taking all their sins on himself. And not just theirs, but every person in this room. Every one of you who believes in Jesus Christ, all the things that you have ever thought, said, and done that were displeasing to God, they were on Jesus in the Jordan. And not just ours, but the sins of the whole world. Everyone who would believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior at that moment in the Jordan, when Jesus was baptized, He felt the weight of the sins of the world. And it's almost too much to bear because it meant the Father's justice and wrath would come upon him. And he knew, he understood that this was happening. He would have been told by his dad and mom what the angels had said. How the angel had said to Joseph about this baby that would be conceived in Mary's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. Give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Similarly, Gabriel said to Mary, You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. He would have been told that by Joseph and Mary. Then when he was 12 years old, he went to the temple in Jerusalem, would be what they call the bar mitzvah for a 12-year-old Jewish boy. And when his parents went home, Jesus stayed behind in the temple three days. His parents had to find him. And then Jesus said to his parents, didn't you understand I had to be in my father's house or in my father's business? And he was talking there with the teachers and the priests. You see, this 12-year-old boy, now anybody here 12 years old or roughly that age, 12 years old, standing there in the temple. When you're in the temple those days, you couldn't help but smell the blood everywhere. Sacrifices going on at this feast time. All kinds of ceremonies in the law. Jesus was grilling those priests and those teachers. What did this all mean? And he understood 12-year-old boy understood all that blood, all that death, all that burden of sin. The whole Old Testament pointing to him. And when his dad and mom came and said, Jesus, why did you do this? He says, dad and mom, I understand. 
I know that I am the one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who is to bear the sins of the world. That's 12 years old. And now he's 30, standing there in the Jordan, being baptized by John, with all those other people who are sinners. And he needed to pray. He had to open his heart to his Father in heaven and says, Father, I know that I am the one. I'm the one that you sent to pay for the sins of the world. But this burden is heavy. It is a heavy burden that you've laid on me. If it could pass, if there's any other way, let's do it. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Father, show me that I have your approval. Show me, tell me that I am the one and what you want me to do is to go on to the cross of Golgotha and to die for sinners. That would have been his prayer or something to that effect. And he immediately received an answer. And that brings us to our third and final point. We read, heaven was opened. Imagine that. Jesus is standing there in the Jordan, dripping wet, soaked through and through, not just with water, but with the sins of the whole world, all the elect laid on him at that moment. And he's praying to his Father, and heaven opens. It's an apocryphal moment, a moment of revelation. Heaven opens, the door rolls open. And Jesus gets an answer. Not just he, but it's, it's something that's a, a public declaration. As we saw from John 1, John the Baptist, he heard this. And so did many other people. It's also striking that whereas Mark and Luke both quote the one in heaven saying, You are my son, Matthew says, This is my son. Now that, that's quite a difference. Why did two say, you are my son? And why did Matthew change that and say that the father said, this is my son? And he may have done that to underline the fact that this was not just a dialogue between the father and Jesus, but it was a dialogue that was in public, that everybody standing there could hear. All those sinners in the Jordan heard God say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So what we're looking at in our text is that the heaven was open, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. So in this single moment, we have three persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all active. First we see the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down from heaven in the form of a dove and comes on Jesus stays on him. It says he came in in the form of a dove. A lot of time and energy has been expended trying to explain the significance of the dove. It is not a dove, but it looks like a dove. And people have long explanations that a dove is a symbol of purity and, and gentleness. There's all kinds of explanations, and I could give you one this morning, brothers and sisters. You can go home and read three commentaries and read three more. To the point that I start to wonder whether we should attach any significance at all to the fact that it was a dove. And that really the point here only is that the Holy Spirit, who is invisible, simply uses the form of a dove to make visible what is invisible. So that we really can see 
as that dove comes down, we can really see that that is a, a, a visible picture of the invisible of the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus. And why did he do that? Well, John the Baptist had explained that in John 1, verses 33 and 34, when he said, I got the message straight from God. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. So the Spirit coming down on Jesus is a confirmation of God himself that he approves Jesus is the one who will baptize with fire and the Spirit, meaning He's our Savior. He is the one who will baptize with the Spirit and fire. He is the one who will wash away your sins with His blood and cause you to be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a confirmation. This is our Lord and our Savior. But it's more than that. It's more than that. And that's something that Peter would explain later on in Acts 10, verse 38, where he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, And he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So the Holy Spirit came on Jesus not just to confirm that he is the Messiah, but to empower him. And what you read after this is the first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit empowers Jesus and says, you know you're the Christ, get out there. Into the ring of fire. First thing we're going to do is we're going to meet the devil and you're going to conquer him by being obedient to your heavenly father. And shortly after that, we read that Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth and he opened the scroll to Isaiah 61 and he read, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. The Holy Spirit has come on me, says Jesus Christ, empowering me to heal the sick, to, to cure the lame, most important of all, to set the captives free, to break your chains, to pry open the bars of the prison, of your enslavement to the devil and to death itself. The Holy Spirit came on Jesus Christ, not just to confirm he's the Christ, but to empower him to go ahead in his ministry. Now, that does raise a question. Does that now mean that Jesus Christ's victory is not only his own, but also that of the Holy Spirit? Brothers and sisters, let's let's not overdo this. When our Lord Jesus Christ hung there on the cross of Golgotha, the Father withdrew from him and blasted him in his wrath and justice against sin. No angel came to minister to him. The Holy Spirit had assisted our Lord Jesus Christ throughout his ministry and said, go to the cross, but when he hung there, he hung there alone. The only thing that he had when he was on the cross of Golgotha was your sins. And he accepted that. And he embraced it. He loved you so much that he was willing to die for you and go to the open doors of hell that all your sins would be removed and you would be righteous. You would be right with God. So we see what the Holy Spirit did for our Lord Jesus Christ, but now we also see in our text 
what the Father does. And we know that it's the Father because the one who speaks in heaven says, this is my Son. So that's the Father speaking to the Son. And he said, you are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, you recognize that in, in this sentence, there are quotations of the Old Testament. And one is Psalm 2, which we sang together, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The other is well known, well established. It's Isaiah 42. And Isaiah 42 is a little bit different. There we read, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So here in our text, when the Father speaks from heaven, he is drawing on those Old Testament passages of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. First of all, he says, this is my son, meaning he's the eternal, natural son of the Father. But he's not just the son, he's also the suffering servant. You see, God so loved the world, he was willing to give up his only son to become a suffering servant and to die for our sins on the cross of Golgotha. When our Lord Jesus Christ stood there in the Jordan River, he wasn't much to look at. looked like a drowned rat. He was soaked through and through. He was burdened down with sins. He was truly despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus wasn't much to look at. And throughout his ministry, it was a ministry of suffering and shame. Nothing that would attract people to him. And now he looked like a drowned rat. He was weighed down with the sins of the world. And the Father spoke from heaven. He said, this is my son. I chose him. I love him. I put my stamp of approval on him. And at that moment, brothers and sisters, the whole world hears from the voice of heaven, from God himself, Jesus, that's my son. And he is your savior. And at this moment, we realize in this one photographic moment, Jesus standing there in the Jordan with John and all those other sinners. But that one moment, we see the triune God all working to the same goal. The Father who so loved the world that He gave His only Son to die for sinners. The Son who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself and made Himself nothing for us. And the Holy Spirit who came on Him and empowered Him and confirmed Him to go on all the way to the cross and to say, when you do that, Jesus, then I'll also be there afterwards at your resurrection and I'll be there on Pentecost to come down and dwell with the church and guide people on the pathway of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is the, the dawn of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that he clearly embraced his calling, which was to bear our sins. He's confirmed by the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now you are going to have to continue to read the gospel according to Luke to see what Jesus will all say and do. And I know you know the ending, but forget about it for a moment. 
Forget about the last couple of chapters of Luke. And I would encourage you today or in the coming week to slowly read for yourself through the gospel according to Luke. And savor each passage. Walk with Jesus. Know the Jesus. I know this sounds terribly touchy-feely, but I mean it. We so easily talk about Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Do you know Him? Do you walk with Him? Have you seen what He faced? The taunting of the scribes and the Pharisees. The grief for those tax collectors and those prostitutes and those beggars. How He wept for them. Walk with the Lord Jesus. See how He dealt with sinners and how He always loved them. And He faced every obstacle and He remained Faithful to his heavenly father. When you walk with the Lord Jesus through the gospels, you will know the savior who is your savior. Personally, he took your sins on himself. All the the things that we did, he took them all on himself and willingly paid for that on the cross of Golgotha. He who was the son of God became the lamb, your lamb. And in this way, is our Lord and our Savior forever.